Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for being with us. I know it's not a usual time slot for Mongo Spaces, but we do appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today, especially on a Friday afternoon when there's a million other things you certainly could be doing in the middle of a relatively cold evening in Nairobi. The story we're here to talk about today is one that affects us in many ways, in many shapes and forms. We have seen the headlines. We have seen the comments coming through from the central bank saying that, look, the market is working as it should. We have seen the comments coming through from the Treasury Principal Secretary, Dr. Julius Moya, where he says, look, this is just a problem of sentiment. But at the same time, I've also spoken to individuals in enterprises, in manufacturers who've said, look, we are struggling to get access to the US dollars that we need in order to be able to buy the raw materials that we have. We are struggling to find the dollars we need to pay our foreign obligations on time. And that is fraying, or in some cases, even breaking supply relationships. So the question we're here to explore in the next 60 and a bit minutes is a fairly simple one. Where exactly are the dollars in this little corner of East Africa? Why is the market broken? And how do we fix it? For that, we'll be speaking to John Gashore. He's a group managing director of NCBA Bank, one of the top tier banks in this little corner of the country. John, welcome to our little space, our little corner of the internet. Let's just start with that fairly straightforward question. Is there a dollar shortage from your perspective? Well, the direct answer is yes, there is a dollar shortage. And what I have perhaps spent a bit of time doing is saying that the connotation of a dollar shortage needs to be well understood. When you say there's a dollar shortage, it could be because supply is not where it's supposed to be. And what I've been saying is that actually supply is where it's supposed to be. It's historical, seasonally adjusted levels. We are there where we should be. What has happened is dollar demand has risen significantly to where it would typically be. And that therefore causes what I call a demand supply gap, which obviously we experience as a dollar shortage. And is that a function of pricing? Is it a question of the fact that if you're selling your dollars to banks, so you're selling it at say 117, but then if you're going to buy the same dollars, you then have to buy them at 125 or something around that level. No, I don't think it's a question of pricing. I think there is a genuine demand supply gap. As I said, if you look at the dollars that we would expect to get a seasonally adjusted, given that it's a dividend payment period, given that it's not a peak or is a low tea season, as well as a low flower season, the dollar that we expect to get from remittances are as high as it can possibly be. The dollars we expect from horticulture and tea is historically where it should be. Obviously, tourism is about 80% of where it should be. When you look at all those things, the supply side seems to be keeping with what I would call expectation. What has happened, however, is that global commodity prices have risen significantly. And I mean, prices, including transportation, shipping prices. And so what is happening is that the demand for importers, where they would historically ask for hundred dollars no, they're asking for $300 to import the exactly same quantity of commodity they would have been importing previously. And that is the issue we are having now. So the demand has gone up two, three times. The supply remains where it should be. And so we have that differential. So whether the price changes or not, there's a genuine supply gap. But isn't there a specific issue that does emerge with respect to the question around pricing? I remember a couple of years ago, we didn't have spreads this wide 
in the retail market, at least the retail facing side of the FX market. Yeah. And now here we are with a situation where we're looking at buy side, sell side spreads of almost 10 shillings. How did we end up with that situation? Because to me, that suggests that the market is not working as it should. Yes, there is certainly a market question. And I think it's worth looking at this problem and saying the solutions are not one bullet. There are a number of bullets that we need. And the one about pricing is perhaps just one of them. And yes, on pricing, I think the gap has gotten too wide. People talk about parallel markets, and I want to say there's always been two prices. And two prices meaning the interbank price, which is quoted, or we call case one, and the over-the-counter price have always been two different prices, right? One you negotiate when you go to your bank, whereas the other one is quoted, and that's the one we trade as interbank or with the central bank for that matter. So there's always been two prices. But your observation, Rama, is that obviously it's gotten a lot wider, and that is for sure. It does need to close. It does need to close. And that helps in certain ways, in the sense that it needs to close by having some level of a price discovery. But as I say so, one has to be very careful because the moment you lose full control on price movements, you make a mistake. Just define that for us, uh, for sure. the sake of some of our audience sure. who may not be familiar with, because I know some of the people yep. in the group will understand what we say when you're talking about price discovery, right? People come into the markets and you say, you know, I have a million dollars, give me your offers. How much do I sell this for in chilling terms? But when you're talking about making sure that price discovery works as it should, what do we need to do? in the interim, at least say in 2022, to make sure that happens. Okay, so Rama, maybe let me first set the context of what people think about price, that the movement of pricing is controlled, because I think there is a genuine question whether the central bank or anyone else is controlling prices. Whenever there is a market, a financial market, and this is true for stock markets, it's true for most markets, there is what is called tick movements. How far can you move from the price today? Yeah? And if you go to a stock market, they'll say, if you move 10% the next tick, they actually stop trading for that particular stock. I think every stock market in the world will have a limit to what level of movement they will allow. And if it goes beyond that, they'll say, something is wrong here. Let's stop it. Yeah. So it's the same with the way we work with the currency market in Kenya. There's a movement that's allowed, say 20 basis point movement for the next price quotation. Okay. And what happens therefore is what that controls is stability of pricing. And as I said, it's true for any stock market in the world as well. They do have control on stability, not on pricing, on stability of pricing. So what has happened because of what I call that big supply gap, Essentially like the sort of price breaks that we have in the exactly. stock market. Uh, you can't, exactly. you know, a share price can go up by more than 10%, Precisely. down by more than 10%. Exactly. So those are the rules we have there. Yeah? And so what you have seen is the dollar pricing has been moving at those allowed ticks. What has happened? Because of that supply, huge supply gap, the actual over-the-counter price has moved significantly. So what we need to do is readjust the ticks, okay? How big should we allow that movement on a daily basis so that the two prices converge? That's what we should do. And I think that's what people keep talking about, that reopening the interbank is not so much the interbank because that's not stopped. What we need to have is the rules we have set for those price movements. We need to revise those and review those. And that conversation is ongoing. Okay. Our regulator. For the records, and we need to clear this up, and I'll give some context as to why I'm asking this question, yeah. because over the last two 
maybe, well, two years, since November 2020, two years. We've been in a situation where members of the banking fraternity, bank CEOs, uh, FX traders, people who used to be able to comment freely on the shilling have now just gone completely silent. There's an atmosphere of fear in the market. In November 2020, I'm sure you saw what happened with the Stanbank Bank, where the bank literally came out and disowned a note from one of the, the analysts on the fixed income side. So for the record, let's clear this up. Has the central bank ever told CEOs or FX trading desks not to trade the shilling at specific prices? For the record, no. What, what there is, and I want to make this very clear, there's what we call market rules that have been agreed between the banks and the central bank. We call them market conduct rules. And we all have to adhere to those market conduct rules. The same way I talked about the stock market has market conduct rules. We have them. Okay. So I hope that's clear. So these are negotiated rules between ourselves and the regulator. Now, what I said was that those rules are obviously dynamic. And we are in discussion to review some of the rules that we have set. But the central bank doesn't call you and say, do not trade at this price. So, yeah, so, please so what, stay within the rules. So what exactly then explains this atmosphere of fear? Because I've never seen this happening before. You know, a little corner of East Africa, we have an arguably one of the largest FX trading desks in this part of the world. We have an open yep. capital market. We have a situation here where we've got people who in the past were able to come into the market and say, look, I don't agree with, or rather, I think this is what's happening with the shilling. This is what I think is happening with dollar supply. This is what I think is happening with imports demand. We could have an open debate around these issues. Now we can't. And the only party in the market that has the ability to shut down debate on that scale is the central bank. I think let's review that point. Is there fear to comment? I think what there is, is that the appreciation and the sensitivity to the fact that we've had a very sentiment driven period of, I wouldn't say it's not just this year. I mean, the dollar issue has been with us for the last perhaps year and a half. So there has been a lot of sensitivity to driving sentiment, if you may, on the dollar, right? That's one. The second thing that is also true is perhaps the availability of information. And I guess the challenge to all of us is when we comment, we don't have the full view of the dollar availability, the way the central bank would have it. So when we meet with the central bank, some of the conversations we have is that they have a better view, a full view of the availability of dollars. Our market is not as open, if you may, from an information perspective, as transparent as, as some of the large currency trading markets are, such as South Africa and others. So we don't have a full view. So I think it's based on that. The central bank at the same time with them essentially suppressing debate. I mean, that's not exactly healthy to creating a transparent operating environment. Because if the one actor, to build on what you're saying, if the one actor who does have a full market view does not then communicate that to the market, that's not exactly helping the situation, is it? Because we're limiting the amount of information that different market actors have. I think at each point, I would bet that at each point where they have said what you said was not right, they have actually provided information or data to show that you didn't have the data and the data showing something different. It hasn't been a question of don't talk at all. It's saying, show me what data you have. I'll show you what I have and I can tell you your data is wrong. So your comment was perhaps wrong. And obviously when you find out that you're commenting on past your data, 
you become careful, right? Knowing that any comment you make will create certain sentiments. I think that's where it's coming from. Is there a fear? I think there is that fear of being asked, where's your data coming from? And I think as all of us should be, if we are commenting on data, you better know where it's coming from, right? You, you can comment by saying, like I'm going to say that from what I see, my own data, from NCBA, this is what I'm seeing. That I can do because I can back that up. When individuals come to the market, and we've seen this with the manufacturing space in particular, because they've been especially vocal about it, companies like Pony Oil shutting down operations for a couple of months, partly because they say, look, we're going to the market, we're trying to meet our specific daily demand for USD, we're simply not getting it. In, in that sort of situation, when companies and individuals are looking at the market and saying, this isn't meeting our needs, right? How then do we fix that problem? And I'm going to try and use this very carefully here. In some sense, the sort of psychology that's at work here, right, is around the question of shortages. If I anticipate there's a shortage of a commodity in the market, I will try and accumulate as much of it as I can in order to essentially hedge my risk, my immediate yep. risk. Yep. So how then do we deal with that specific problem? I think you have properly highlighted the danger of creating sentiment, yeah? Because what you have said is one sentiment is there, it's a sentiment of fear, it promotes holding, if you may, yeah? People want to hold dollars. And I think that's why people have to be very sensitive to what they say in terms of driving sentiment. So that's what I think. To your second question, uh, allow me, Ramat, if I may, just to, to first comment on a couple of things, and then I'll come to the specific. One is that there has been, obviously, a lot of talk of depreciating shilling. So it's a pricing conversation as opposed to availability. There has been a lot of talk about that. But what I want everybody to appreciate is that the dollar has strengthened globally, strongly. If you look at the euro to the dollar, for example, the euro is down close to 9% year to date. If you look at the, the British pound, down 15% year to date against the dollar. And I can go through all these things and say, actually, part of the reason you see the price moving the way it's moving on the shilling is actually because it's a global phenomenon. Then there is obviously the micro, which is the availability of dollar that we're talking about. And then on that, then talking about the particular question is a number of things. One is that let's appreciate that we don't have enough dollars to meet the demand. The supply demand gap is there. Let's appreciate that. However, two things must be borne to mind. One is that we're trading dollars every month at the same volume or one of the largest volumes you have ever traded, $2 billion a month. That's a substantial volume. That means that somebody who needs dollars, if you give it enough time, you'll get the dollars, yeah? And that is what's happened today. We are seeing customers come. I have a very big order book as NCBA. We have agreed with customers, I need this next week, I need this the week after. And we then get the dollars slowly. And by the time they get to the point where they need to make the payment, dollars become actually available. So that's what we're doing is to say, don't wait until I need dollars tomorrow to come and ask for them. No, come early, tell us what you need. We enter you into the order book and then we fill your orders slowly because the dollars are still coming. As I said, there's a gap. And so we prioritize depending when you came to us for those dollars. I think that's the way we can do it. What I would also like to say is that I do expect the situation to abate. I can tell you this week, for example, the central bank has supplied a substantial amount of dollars into the market. How much did they bring in? I don't know the exact amount. I know what we have received is a substantial amount. And I can tell you that because of that, what we ourselves are observing 
is that the sentiment is starting to a bit. Although I still have a big order book, customers are now saying, yeah, I can wait at you next week. Before they were saying, whatever you have, give me, give me now. Now I'm seeing them saying, actually, no, I don't necessarily have to get it today. And that's a great change of sentiment because then people are able to plan in an era of planning as opposed to one of hoarding and fear. Among your client books, yes. I'm not sure to what extent your corporate clients have a lot of foreign-facing suppliers or foreign-facing credit facilities that they need to service, but how have they been affected, for lack of a better word, by this shortage that we're seeing in the market? Are there situations where clients have said, look, John, we need a bit of extra time here. We need a little bit of extra, uh, maybe an OD facility in order to bridge of our debt service obligations or to meet supplier demand. Has that sort of thing happened? So far, it has not happened. What I have seen, however, is obviously a lot of concern because of the cost of dollars, for example, because when you must have it, say we have to retire an LC line, mm -hmm. we will prioritize that. Sorry, for the clarity of our audience, when he's talking about an LC line, a letter of credit, that's what you're saying. Yeah, so, yeah, so whenever we have to retire a letter of credit, it gets priority. It's a commitment by the bank that we must pay. For something like that, we will prioritize and we'll pay. The complaint, obviously, is the cost of the dollar to settle that line, yeah, is a bit high. So, but I haven't seen anybody say, you know what, John, I need more time because I can. What I'm seeing, however, when I speak with importers, the other is one customer who told me they have had to delay payment to their outside supplier because of the cost of the dollar. And they were saying, well, I'm finding the dollar is so expensive that if I buy the dollars at that price, John, I will lose. So I'm negotiating with them to give me a bit more time. So I'm seeing that those conversations going. I'm just looking at some data. This should actually highlight this from Churchill Oguto. He's pointed this out online and he's pointing out that our net foreign assets position, at least on the banking side of things, has really exploded. In fact, it's gone up by a factor of about 10 in the year to end April. We've gone from around, this is just looking at money supply. We've gone from around 13.7. I'm not sure if this is in shillings or dollars, 13.7 all the way to negative 13.7 all the way to 168.8. I believe the peak that we had was in March, negative 172.7. This sounds like you have a lot of net claims on foreign assets in our banking institution as a whole. Can you walk us through this trend? Sorry, can you explain what they mean by that? If you look at the net foreign assets line in our M3 tabulation, our money supply data, under central bank obligations, net foreign assets are around 678.7 or so billions of Kenyan shillings, 678 billion shillings. But the net foreign assets question on banking institutions, we've gone all the way from, I believe this is because it's a negative number. So this is a claim of about 13.7 billion in net foreign assets, all the way up to negative 168.8. I'm trying to think what that number represents. Let me maybe talk about the holdings of banks, because I think that's what it represents. Let's start with liabilities, which are the deposits, you know, fixed deposits, basically liabilities. On the liability side, we have certainly seen growth in foreign currency denominated liabilities. Yeah. And third is primarily because, you know, customers who are holding dollar assets don't have an incentive to exchange for shilling unless they're using it for trading. So if I had a dollar asset, you know, people do get paid in dollars. We have lots of those NGOs and foreign nations, and then companies that receive dollar income just are holding it in dollar unless they need to change it to shillings to trade. Okay. So we have seen a growth in dollar claims or dollar liabilities. 
on one hand. On the other side, in terms of the borrowing, actually what we have seen is a lot more customers wanting to convert their dollar loans into shilling loans. Why? Because obviously the cost of servicing those loans are going up dramatically. So we're seeing a lot of them wanting to convert. And perhaps that's where the negative is coming from. It's perhaps that, that differential that is, that's being described there. To what extent are you concerned about data's pointing in that direction with the sell-off that we saw with Safaricom, for example, down all the way from peaks of over 40 shillings a share, coming all the way back down to around 23. And we know part of that was driven by, given the number of the percentage of its shares that are being held by foreign institutional buyers, when markets abroad were creating, they'll say, you know what, flight to safety, exit the market. But with what we're seeing now, with our current macro situation, with the ongoing concerns around accessing the USD, how concerned are you about a capital flight? It's a concern. I've talked about the seasonal adjustment of the dollar supply. I think there is perhaps not a seasonal adjustment, but a demand of dollar that's also new, which is a capital reversion, which is what you just described. Foreign investors getting out of emerging markets. This is not about Kenya. This is about emerging markets, frontier markets, and really was driven by two things, actually. The losses that funds in developed world incurred as a result of the Russian-Ukrainian war, directed in Russia, directed in Ukraine, and obviously the surrounding countries where stocks and holdings have lost value significantly. That was one. So that forced a lot of capital reversion, and obviously that means the view emerging markets and frontier markets like ourselves as being extremely risky. So that was one. The second thing is that in the U.S., the Fed Reserve has increased rates dramatically, yeah? and they have given signals to increase it even more. What does that mean? It means that the dollar assets have become a lot more valuable. So what's happening is then people are taking money from other currencies and investing into dollar because now you're getting very good returns. Remember, there were zero point something returns. Now those have jumped up already, you know, 175 basis points with another 150 promised. So we're seeing that as a capital, that's very strong capital reversion. And I think thirdly is that historically, right before elections in Kenya, we do see a level of capital reversion or a capital oh. investment delay, right? Any money that was coming in for investment, people would rather wait. If you're six months to election, most investors would rather wait to do it right after elections. That's something we have always seen. So I call that a seasonality that we have always had in Kenya. Okay, moving forward then. How then do we deal with, and I'm looking back to something you mentioned a little earlier, the question around how do we change the rules of trading in the FX market in the interim in order to at least give a bit more flexibility on how banks can respond to this surge in demand? Because if we're just looking out, say, over a 12-month horizon, based on all the factors that you mentioned, we have an election coming up. The Fed is essentially on this rate hike path, and that's going to be likely going to be the case for a while to come. Oil prices, not likely to go down anytime soon because Russian crude is still on the sidelines. Soy is Venezuelan crude, soy is Iranian crude. That's going to remain a fairly tight market. With all these factors we've discussed, what can we do in the interim to make sure that dollar supply is made as easy as possible? Let me start with the expectation of seasonality, right? That I expect that the heavy dividend payment season is coming to an end. So I expect that in July, we will have a bit less pressure on the shelling. And so I do expect this demand to start more moderate. That's the positive side. And then right after elections will be in September. And I expect in September, you see 
tea production jumps quite significantly. September, October, high tea season, and, and then it's a, and hot catch as well. And so we expect again that dollar dollar supply gets stronger during that period. So I think we are going to a period where we'll see a bit of this a reversion in terms of demand or in terms of that supply gap, if you may. That said, what can we do? A number of things. One, as I said, is behavioral. And I think I've talked about the fact that let's plan it out. Let's talk to our banks early. Let them know when you need dollars and give enough time for them to, to source dollars. I think that's behavioral. Second one is on pricing. And that is the market conduct I talked about that we're discussing with our regulator is to see how we can create better visibility you may of data across and therefore allow us to price properly. Because even when I read, I see they'll say Bank A is pricing dollars at this price. When I go to Bank B, it's a different price. Bank A is giving me all the dollars I need. Bank C says only $3,000. So there's not enough visibility, if you may, across the banks. And we need to see that for sure. Just to interrupt briefly, can you go into some sure. detail on the pricing question? Because I know that the platform that a lot of these yeah. trades are happening on, right, they're called Refinitiv now, the data site, is the, that's the way a lot of these trades do happen. And all of the FX trading sites, desks rather, across the banks, all have access, right, to this specific platform. So when we say there's no visibility in the market, what exactly do we mean? No, what I meant was one, visibility of supply, right? As I said, you asked me an earlier question, why aren't banks commenting on this? And I said, because we don't have all the data. So better visibility of supply, better visibility of demand, that becomes very important. I think the second one on that is even on pricing, there is what I'd call large purchase of dollar visibility that you'll see. But there's a lot of obviously smaller purchases of dollar. If somebody comes to my counter and sells a dollar, sells us $100,000, you know, that will probably never show up on the case one screen, you know? So it's that whole visibility. And also the other one is to say, there are spikes where banks will buy dollars, say significantly above case one, yeah? And if you do, if it's one purchase and one purchase only, it should not then be the one that you use to say dollars are going at 120. So again, you need to have a large amount of data to come up with an average. That's the visibility I'm talking about. That's what data bank market ideally should be fixing. If within the market, Absolutely. your trading guy should be able to go into the market and say, look, we need a million dollars. Right. KCB or Stanbake or APSA or whoever is able to right. essentially deliver that, right? You negotiate that in that market, right? No, yeah, I fully agree. If the interbank was working completely transparently, that's how it would be. Yeah, because uh, that, then everybody would know what is trading it. What I'm trying to say, I think you've heard already, and we accept the interbank is not working the way it should, right? So banks probably are not behaving in the right market conduct in terms of the interbank. But part of it is because given time, there has been a runaway differential between the counter price and the case one price. Do so we need to lock the discovery mechanism to reset case one, for example? Do we need to essentially say lock in that margin and then say if case one is at X, then your counter price should essentially only be X plus, I don't know, one shillings or two shillings <laughs> or a specific margin? So I am never the one for blunt instruments because what you does, that's what you just described. That's a blunt control instrument, but it would obviously change something. There are some countries that would do it. I think Kenya, we are true believers in free markets. So I wouldn't 
say a blunt instrument. But I think a, a way of this method of discovery has to be put in place. And as I said, we're discussing that with the regulator. How do we ensure market discovery methods and how do we ensure transparency is then is developed. So that's one. That will help start to close the gap between case one pricing and on the counter price. So that's one. Number two is obviously review of those market rules, market conduct rules, which again, as I said, we are actually in very serious discussion in the central bank. These are market rules that the banks have come up with. We're reviewing them line by line, what we need to change. I think that's the second one. The third one is what I mentioned the central bank has done, which is to come into the market and start to help support some of that supply. And as I said, I have seen the central bank come in very strongly to do that. And that is starting to help sentiment. The other one, as I've said before, you've heard me say, is that the only way you can get somebody who is holding dollars, who doesn't need to change dollars for trading purposes, the only way you can get them to sell their dollars is to give them better returns if they held say a deposit in shillings as opposed to a dollar deposit and that becomes the interest rate. Indeed. And I know you've mentioned that and we'll get to that in a bit, but just before that, with respect to the question around uh, changing the market rules, as part of your discussions with the central bank, and I'm using this, now this is framed to you as in your capacity as chair of the Kenya Bankers Association. Yes. Is part of those discussions focused around increasing the foreign currency exposures that banks can run? Because I know the limit now is around 10%. Would raising that to say perhaps... 20%, 20%, will that help? So the conversation we are having is not about increasing the foreign ex- that net open position exposure. And the reason I say that is because I don't believe banks are using that net open exposure even to what they are allowed to do today. I think the banks are conservative and they're not using it well enough. So part of the conversation is how do we get banks to feel comfortable holding a larger net open position? Okay. So it's not necessarily increasing it because even what we allow today, we're not using it. Yeah. So it's getting them to use it. But how do you get comfortable? Part of the pricing debate that we're having is that for banks that are using it, I must say there are very few who are, to the extent of a large net open position, they obviously have to price their dollars quite wide to ensure that if the dollar moves and they're in short position, they are not hit with huge losses. And that is what's part of the driving of the pricing of dollars in some banks. Okay, let's get back to the point that you made a little earlier, the question around making it more attractive for people to actually hold um, the Kenyan shilling. Yields on our 2024 note, I believe, were about 15% not too long ago. Inflation in this particular part of the world is now at 7.9% by end yes. June. So how high would rates have to go? in order to make it attractive to hold the shilling? So the euro bond is a dollar asset. The shilling asset, the most recent one was obviously the infrastructure bond, which was about 13.7. I know you have seen that MPC has started on the journey of raising rates. And obviously with the latest data of inflation, as you say, 7.9 is significant and it's outside the range of the central bank. So I do expect that MPC will continue to work on that. So I don't, do I have an exact number that they need to raise it? I don't actually. We can do an academic exercise to say what we think the number should be. I don't want to do that now. But to me, it has to be higher, right? The total interest rate on shilling asset has to be higher than 
what you earn on a dollar deposit plus the expectation on depreciation of the shilling. I think that's the simple math in my view. Oh, so essentially, we're just going to have to keep raising rates. And I guess the question would be, in an environment where we're looking at whoever comes in from August moving forward, yep. we're still in a situation where fiscal dominance is still fairly strong. Appetite for government debt isn't going down anytime soon. But at the same time, if the central bank has to raise rates in order to try and keep the lid on inflation, but the fiscal side of it is essentially just saying, look, we need as much money as we can at whatever price and willing to pay, you know, obscene bids of 12% on three money. It's slightly contradictory. Isn't it? Because it seems like you've got monetary policy that has to slam the brakes, but fiscal policies foot flat on the gas and say, look, we need more cash as much as we can. I, I think I'll be right to say that after the first year of a new government, fiscal spend tends to drop there yeah, because they're appointing a new government, they're deciding on which projects to continue with, which ones to start. So I expect that the next year just slows down in terms of investment. That means that from a liquidity perspective, not fiscal spend because it's budgeted, but from a liquidity perspective, that demand does go down a bit. And at the end of the day, the need for liquidity will converge with the fiscal spend there. But how realistic is that, given the fact that we've got $8 billion of debt service every fiscal year, roughly half of that is just paying back all these dollar-denominated loans we've taken from eurobonds, traded, yeah. and banked. China Exim Bank, and the weaker the shilling gets, right, the bigger the spit, the percentage of cash that we have to take out of our little tax pot in yes. order to service those foreign denominated loans. And that's baked in regardless of whatever the government does from August. Right. So I think first to your question, how realistic it is, it's historical. It has always been the case. New government comes in, liquidity needs to go down because it stops them spend to create new others to appoint new government projects do tend to go slow on the first year. So that's historically true. On the question of the set spend, that is also true, but that is true today. It will be true after the election. So it has nothing to do with the election. So I think you had asked me about the election expectations. And I think my point earlier still holds that we can then play with the interest rate, not because there is a budget deficit we're trying to fill, but because we're trying to address dollar problem, uh, an inflation the, problem for that matter. The, well, the reason why I was bringing that up was because yeah. we end up in a situation where if you've got $4 billion a year of foreign obligations that you need to service, yeah. and the currency in which you're able to service those obligations are in is essentially going down. So for example, if you look at obligations to the China Exim Bank, right, for the debt that we took on to build at the SGR, when we signed that contract, the dollar shilling rate is around 85. Now we're closer to 117, if we use the case KS1 number as our reference point. Yep. So in that sense, you're looking at a 20% jump, right, in your debt service obligations, just in shilling terms. In dollar terms, it's exactly the same. So regardless of whatever else the rest of us do, I mean, there's a strong incentive here for Treasury to essentially try, for lack of a better word, and to manage the rate. There's always incentive to ensure price stability. As you said before, even on stock market, there is a lot of incentive to ensure price stability. And if I look at what the regulator looks at, has always been about price stability. And so I don't necessarily think that what I call the street belief that we are forcing the dollar rate to be low because of our debt obligation is true. I think what we are trying to force is price stability. And I think that should be celebrated by everybody. 
obviously, it should not result in the matter we have in today. And I think that's why it's very important to understand why the supply gap in dollar today exists, because it should not be the result. But I think also, Ram, if we look beyond our borders a little bit, I know that people will say, well, I don't care about what's happening in another country. My pain is my pain. I agree. But if you look across the world today, every country is complaining about the price or the availability of dollars. It's true for Nigeria. I think it's very bad in Nigeria. It's terrible. Well, hold on. Nigeria is a bit of an outlier. Because <laughs> they've been running a fixed exchange rate, an unsustainable one for a very long time. Yeah, they, I think they have had the same problem uh, where at some point tried to chase the price of the dollar by making sure that the prices converge. They started to lose control. Then they took a very strong blunt instrument to try to control it. And obviously that created that huge gap between what they call official rate and what the actual rate is there. Yeah? I think that is why we should support the fact that there is concerted effort to put in place measures to manage stability of change in the shilling dollar rate. I think that is important. The other thing I would say is that people are talking about what else can government do. There are a lot of things that can happen on the price, but it doesn't necessarily fix the supply. I think that we have to be also very careful that people don't think fixing the price fixes supply. And that's why I keep talking about this gap and people understanding that gap. And a number of countries have attempted. I mean, Uganda has introduced a few new things. Tanzania, as you know, has introduced a few new things. We really don't want or don't need to have government come in with plant instruments to control the price of the dollar. Again, you don't want that. I agree with you 100% with respect to imposing a sort of fixed exchange rate. But at the same time right now, in the name of chief stability, the net result of those policy actions is the fact that the price, there's a clear divergence, for lack of a better word, in price that people are getting access to for the USD. Now I know that the shilling has essentially hit 118.22 in trading today. Yeah. But if I go to my bank today, I'm not going to get the shilling at 118.22. I'll get it likely at 123, 124. The market is broken in that sense. And it, it sounds as though there's a bit of denial in the space among policymakers who are saying, well, you know, everything's fine from where we're standing. If you guys are being hit by rain, that's not really our problem. I wouldn't say there's denial. I think there is acceptance that there is one pressure on the cost of the dollar, but more importantly, there's a significant supply gap in the availability of dollar. You know, Rama, if, I think it'd be really good if everybody said that if I went to the bank, I'll get the dollars, but they'll be at this price. I think the issue that I'm worried about is that you go and you say, even at any price, you, you don't have it, yeah? Which is what's happening in some cases. I think that to me is a bigger concern. But isn't so that what prices should essentially be able to fix, right? If the interbank market works as it should, right, on one end, and even let's leave the discussion that I know banks are having with the central bank on the side for the time being, without proper price discovery, I mean, this problem will just get worse and worse and worse, won't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But there's the other side of it, which is that you can lose control on stability so that even when the supply problem goes away, there's no reversal. I think it's important to, to remember that there has to be a way to reversal. I think the conversations we're having, as I said, is in transparency of pricing to help us then figure out what two case one is, where it should stand. And therefore, that becomes the convergent point. That said, and I want to be very clear, we will still have a supply gap today, significant supply gap. So it doesn't solve the problem. 
It's like saying you can raise price all you want, but if the car is not there to be sold, it doesn't matter the price. With respect to these discussions you're having with the central bank as bankers, when do you expect to have a resolution on that? When should we expect new rules for the road, so to speak? Well, I don't give a time, Rama. I think there is quite a bit of work that needs to be done. But as I said, seeing the sentiment change and the supply or the demand constraints start to lessen in the last one week, I think we do see what we expected is starting to happen. But that said, I think it's a matter of a couple of weeks. Okay. There's a question that's come through, although I'm looking at the data from central banks, FX reserves, it's usable reserves rather. And yep. it's dropped by roughly $200 million so far in the month of June. There was a question here about the central bank getting into the market and actively selling US dollars in order to at least try and sort of manage the pressures, the demand side pressure that we're seeing now for the dollar. But how is that sustainable, at least in the medium term? I think as I've been quoted saying is, and I say it again, is that selling of reserves is not a solution and we shouldn't advocate for such a solution. However, selling of excess reserves is something that the central bank does. It's been quite always active in the market. If you have excess reserves to come and sell into the market, it's one of the suppliers. It's part of the interbank. If you may, I think it helps whenever there is excess reserves to sell into the market. But I don't think it's sustainable to think that reserves can stabilize a currency because the first thing anybody looks at is at the macro level is to say, is the country healthy to trade with? Before they even say, is this bank healthy to trade with there? So those are the levels they look at. I would ask people to look at Nigeria and Sri Lanka and a few other cases where the sovereign itself is at a risk in terms of reserves and dollar availability and see the difficulty then of trading within such a, a country for any entity within that country to trade outside. Because you judge even before they believe you don't have dollars or you have dollars, they've told you, but the country doesn't have dollars. So I think it's important that we support the central bank stance of saying the reserves are not there to be sold to solve a today problem. Okay. I'd like to bring in, as the chairman of the Kenya Association of Manufacturers, into the conversation. For our listeners, I'd like to remind you, if you've got questions and comments, I see some of them are streaming into our DMs and into Mongo Capital's DMs as well, but also as well, you can just tweet to us on our platform and we'll get to those in a moment. Mushai, you have the floor. Talk to us. Oh, hi, Rama. Thank you very much. And thank you, John. I think as usual, very clear and informative message on how the market is going and what is going on. I think also thanks Mongo and Rama for bringing up the conversation. This is a conversation we've been wanting to have. And I think whenever we've been raising the issue for us is like, we need to have the conversation about what is going on so that people can better understand, better see what is happening. I think John talked about, let's call it the asymmetry of information so people know where we are. And that's what is going to help going forward. Uh, my comment one is just that I think maybe as a country, we're not really decided about whether we are a free market or not, because we have certain aspects where we are trying to manage prices or economic outcomes rather than let the free market manage them. And I think the exchange rate is like one of those. Because my own view is that the exchange rate is not a number of pride or, you know, some people kind of see it like we're going to be proud about what our exchange rate is, whether it's going up or not. It is actually a result. It's almost like an answer. It's a result of our economic performance vis-a-vis -vis global 
circumstances. And I think John very clearly put out earlier on what is happening in the world and where we are in that space. So for instance, if we look at the, the performance of the pound and the euro in Kenya, we are actually appreciating, which is very strange given where our economic performance is and where the rest of the world is for emerging markets, it should be declining. But I think that just again goes to show because the reference currency is the dollar, which means whenever we get pounds, we take them through the dollar first, as well as the euro, that dollar price has a problem. So one of our challenges has been that there is a KES 1, 117, but that number means almost nothing. Well, it's Every, at 118 now. It's 118, yes. People just kind of don't believe. The market does not believe that number. Uh, we think, our view is that if that was a bit looser, we would be seeing a little bit more trade, but I fully agree with what John was saying. I don't think we will resolve the balance between demand and supply fully if the price does move up, if KKS1 does move up, but we can ameliorate a little bit because what is happening now, we are creating additional problems. We do have one in terms of the cost of whatever we import has gone up significantly. Whatever we sell, the dollar price is kind of remaining the same. That is a long-term structural, medium, long, medium-term structural problem that will remain. But, and like you mentioned, I think one of your questioners did ask that earlier, we are seeing people holding more dollars than maybe they would need to because they don't accept the price of 117. If they go to the bank and the bank says, we'll change it at 117, they don't believe that that is a price. Similarly, the banks, as we are saying, when they are taking positions and they're selling us dollars, they also don't believe it's 117. If they did, they would be selling us dollars at 117. They would be happy to take a market position at 117, but they know there's a risk and the risk is on the upside. So if we had at least the dollar price reflecting a little bit more of what the market is saying, whatever the rules might be, and how we can make the rules, the rules should, in a free market, the rules should allow the free market price to be displayed. If we are saying there are rules and the rules are stopping the free market price being displayed, there's a problem in there. But I think we're also getting concerned about that differential in the price. Uh, John, he can maybe answer this. They say, you follow the money. Who's making that margin? That margin is so huge. And yes, the bank has a position. I think 10%, they might be selling a little bit on a higher price, but they are also buying some dollars at 115, 116. So they are making the margin. So what is their incentive to change the rules? Life is good for them. Whereas everyone else is suffering. So I'd like to challenge Jordan. Maybe he can tell us a little bit about what we are doing. But I think what we would like to see, and I think also to say that for manufacturers, and for the country as a whole, the depreciating of the shilling is a painful pill. Life will be difficult. We are seeing that in inflation, in the cost of goods. It is there. But I think when you live in a free market economy, and this is the way we worked, and these are the rules, the rules work as the rules work. And when things go, they don't just work when it's happy times, when it is also difficult times, we still need to follow whatever the free market rules are and bear that consequences. Okay in the hope that in the long term, it's going to resolve itself. Thanks. All right. I'm going to give John the floor to answer that question around the proper pricing of yeah, okay. the shilling in the interbank market. And then I'll come back to you for follow-up question, Mushai. Okay. 
John, over to you. Okay. Let me start by confessing that obviously the, the banks are making very good margins, actually very good margins, I suppose, in this market. But that does not make banks happy. They may be making really good margins, very good effects income, I think we shall say. However, you always have to remember banks make money because their clients are making money. That's the reality. And I always like to remind everybody that we make money because you business people who are on the ground are, are doing well. If you're not, we're in trouble. So we would certainly want to see a case where the dollar supply is not a problem to allow you to trade because in so doing, we shall be able to do LCs. We'll make money in other ways. Uh, so for us, we are very concerned about that issue. That's that one. So I don't think it's fair to say that the banks should be very happy. So they have no incentive to want to close that gap. Actually, they do. We also don't like that everybody is talking about banks not giving them dollars. Banks care a lot about reputation. So that obviously concerns us a great deal. I think in terms of the actual pricing, two things I would say is, yes, as I said before, we need to get to the right, what I call real price. I don't believe that we know what that is. I don't believe that because somebody is buying dollars for 120, 122, that that is the real price. Because even from back to back, it's quite different. You find sometimes a two shilling difference, which is too large, which means the market price is not very clear. That's one. The second thing is that even if you just let it float, if there are no market stability rules and you just let it float, then you don't know where to will end because there is truly a supply gap. And as long as there's a supply gap, once you auction, as I always say, if I have one shot and there are 10 people who want to buy that one shot, it does not matter what people think the price is, you can keep raising the price especially when they are, they are under obligations to deliver that shirt somewhere, they'll pay the money that you ask for it, yeah? So when there is it's a genuine supply gap, it's very dangerous to have a completely free floating price. I think that is important to know for us to appreciate. Now, I think, as I said, once they, they, there is very good need, as Mushai said, to have the prices converge a bit. This differential is not healthy for anybody, not even for banks. It's not healthy for anybody. So there's need to converge. That is what I said we are working on, that transparency. Because a lot of this, you hear somebody say, I bought dollars at this price. I even sold them at this price. It's not true that banks are necessarily buying dollars at case one. Banks are buying at prices different case one. I know that for a fact. Yeah, we are. And so it's really getting to the point where we know that the large amount of dollars that's coming to the market or being bought by banks, what are they buying at? And that becomes then the price. Then we say, if that's what we are buying dollars at, then we should have stability rules that say that then your margins cannot be more than X because it does not make sense. Because we know there's supply, then we have to force those margins. So that's the work that we are doing. There's a question here that has come in from some of our followers online. Donny's effects, and this goes back to the question that we had, the discussion had earlier around raising rates in order to make it attractive for people to actually move out of the dollar into the Kenyan shilling. But his question is this, how is demand destruction through raising rates an answer for largely imported or supply-led inflation? When you raise rates, that's the best known monetary tool to deal with inflation. So I think it will also address inflation. And I think what you have seen, the steps MPC has started to take, a lot of it was in response to the inflation problem. But that's not usually the case though, is it? Because in our case, the MPC can raise rates as much as they want, but that's not going to change the oil supply situation. 
It's not going to deal with the fact that wheat supply markets really have been messed up in a significant manner. So in that sense, even though the CBR is a blunt yes. instrument, but its reach, for lack of a better word, is pretty limited. I think, Rama, say safe to say, and let's maybe digress a bit uh, to an economic discussion. I think safe to say this is globally, not just Kenya, globally, a very confusing period on inflation. And I think every central bank is struggling to figure out how to deal with the inflation. Obviously, the instrument they have always used was the monetary policy. You raise interest rates like the US, UK, everybody is doing. That has always been the instrument used. But that instrument works very well when inflation is demand-driven, okay? Here we have a case where inflation is supply-driven. Okay, you see everybody saying, we're trying this to see if it works because it has worked before. Nobody can tell you with 100% certainty that raising rates will deal with inflation because of that question somebody just asked. It's important. It's important in the U.S. It's important in every country today. Inflation is important, unfortunately. That's the reality, but that's the only instrument. It's not the only instrument, but that's the main instrument. We know when it comes to supply, unfortunately, it has not been uh, tested. This is the first time it's being tested, and we pray that it works. But on the donor shilling issue, we have indeed used interest rates before to solve the problem. I think people would recall the previous regime of Professor... Yeah, Professor... When he had this same issue, what did he do? He just jerked up interest rates very high. And that addressed the problem. That's the reality. So I'm saying that we have a twin problem of inflation and, of course, the dollar shilling. Interest rates have been used to address inflation. Hopefully, they'll work. It's difficult to say, given inflation right now is supply-driven. However, we know it can work on the dollar side of things. It can help. Moshai, I want to bring you back into the conversation just briefly. We have seen the headlines. We've seen the interviews with Hwani Oil, for example, talking about how the operations have been crippled because they're not able to get the dollar access that they need in the market. Can you paint a picture for us? Tell us how your members are being affected by the ongoing dollar shortage access problems that they're facing in the market at the moment. What has that done to their ability to supply products into the market? What has that done to supply relationships, to creditor relationships abroad? What is happening on your end? Okay, yeah, thanks, Rama. Uh, and I think Pwani perhaps is a good example, and we actually load them for coming out and speaking on the situation as it is on the ground. Now, of course, our members are quite varied. Not all our members have large import bills. We also have manufacturers who are using local material, manufacturing for export and so on. So not all members would be affected in a similar way, or in fact, even to the extent to which they do buy imported products. But for those who have imported products, this has become a big concern, which is why we actually originally raised it. And mostly around, like you mentioned, credit and then supply of goods, where you now get into a situation where you're not able to pay on time or very similarly, like we talked about the banks earlier, you are a bit cautious about whether you want to take that risk of buying goods and taking a liability, which you're not sure whether you'll be able to meet it. The other bit of it, which is why, and I'm kind of agreeing partly with what John was saying about the importance of stability on the price or predictability, I think is a better word for us, yeah. is people don't know how to price. It starts becoming very difficult to price your goods when you do not know 
when you come to paying your creditor for the goods he supplies you, if I buy, let's say I import uh, cooking oil and I am not sure when I'm coming to pay 60 days from now, what the price of the dollar will be, I need some level of comfort or understanding around what is, what's that price so that I can price the goods that I'm selling today at a good price. So that is causing some issues and I think is can also be, uh, let's say it can cause some sort of speculation or inflationary problems, which are, let me say unnecessary, because if you had some predictability around that, you would not have to try and speculate or guess. So the manufacturer is having to guess and try and figure out what the price would be. So that's that, useful for on us. On that tangent yeah. that you've just actually raised. Yeah. I know we spoke about this briefly in the past, because when your members have to go into the market and say, you know, if, if I know I need a hypothetical number here, if I know I need $200,000 a day, right. And I've gone into the market and now in the past, because of what's happening in the first half of the year, I know I won't get that 200,000. So then I will say by, you know, 20,000 here, 50,000 from this bank, 30,000 from that bank. So from your end, it looks like you're essentially accumulating USD. And yet you're doing that as a rational response to the shortages you're seeing in the market, but are your members getting penalized in any way for that? Because the other end of the equation might look at it and say, well, this looks like speculative activity. Why are you going long on the dollar here? And yes. you're just holding the currency, but there's no economic activity, quote unquote, that's the argument that will be made. There's no economic activity to back the holding of the dollar. Actually, it's very painful for manufacturers because it becomes now a working capital issue where I'm having to hold. You see, in the past, when let's say when things were hunky-dory, everything is going well. If I needed $200,000, I knew I could call my bank and I'll get $200,000 today, tomorrow. I'll be able to pay my liabilities. It's not an issue. Today, when I know I have big liabilities and your bank, like some of our banks are telling us, it's $5,000 a day. If I know at the end of July, I have a liability of 200000 every day I am buying dollars so that my dollar account can have sufficient money to pay my creditors on that particular day. So yes, you start looking like you're speculating or accumulating dollars, but really you're just trying to, to make sure that you're going to be able to pay uh, when the payday comes, because payday is coming and you need your supplies to continue running. What's, That's becoming expensive and it will come out in the price of goods as well. What's that doing to the employment side of things though? How is it, because you know, we've seen with Pony Oil, you know, when you shut down operations, you can't exactly afford to just keep people on the payroll if you don't have money coming through the door, right? So for a sector that supports 300,000 jobs directly, I believe one and a half million more indirectly, what's the outlook for you? First of all, let me just start by saying, and I like what John was saying, we want to be confident that we are going to resolve this problem, that as we raise it, we are going to get some responses and start solving the issue so that we don't get into that area of where we have to start talking about jobs and so on. So at the moment, we are not uh, at a large scale, say, having to talk about what job losses would be coming. But what we are trying to do when we raise this alarm is saying, can we sort this thing out before that becomes the necessary solution? Uh, in this situation. So at the moment, I think we could just say people are tight. Uh, luckily, because the whole world is in some sort of tightness, we have a lot of suppliers who will be, uh, let's say, is it understanding or kind of aware of the situation? But it is not something you want to rely on. You're not going to be able to live on their understanding 
or the aggressors for too long. You have to solve your own problems. You shall not live on the benevolence of others. <laughs> exactly. You cannot. <laughs> we need to keep that going and work it. I think the other thing is that because we can also see what is happening in other countries. We've seen uh, Sri Lanka, worst case scenario. We've seen uh, Pakistan also tightening and so on. Our suppliers can see these markets. And a lot of our suppliers are also uh, running on insured products. They give us credit because they are covered. So it is important for us to not only solve the problem, but be seen to be responding in conventional economic terms. You know, we are responding in ways people understand and can see. Because it's kind of, we live in a transparent world of information. So that whole point of the world being able to see information on Kenya, to see what our position is, is so important. Otherwise, we create for ourselves secondary problems that are unnecessary. Okay. Let me just put one question to John here. This one's come through from a guy on Twitter. As a foreign investor, and I know there's some way in the room at the moment, as a foreign investor, if I cannot trust the prices that I see on Reuters or on Bloomberg, why would I then enter the Kenyan market? Let me first say that I talked about the supply we have seen in the last one week, and I really talked about CBK. We have actually seen dollar sales from quite a number of fintechs and other small to medium-sized entities, which tells me that they're getting comfortable about the current pricing levels. Now, just like everything else with your bank, you negotiate. So even though we have a case one, the reality is if you're selling dollars to your bank, you'll go and negotiate. I've never seen anybody come in and say, I know it's 117, therefore I'm doing a 117 or 118. That's what I'm going to do. They always come and say, I don't care what it is. I have a bureau that's willing to buy a tax. They negotiate. I think that is also important to note. And that's why I talked about the transparency and convergence of what people are actually trading these dollars at or buying these dollars at. That is one. So I would tell investors that the good thing about Kenya is you can still take your dollars out. Be encouraged that unlike a number of countries where I know that it's impossible to get your dollars out, and I hate to quote our friends in Nigeria, but I think there's an article that came up recently, a research paper that basically downgraded Nigeria because investors cannot take their money out. And that seems to be some policy instruments geared towards not being able to take your money out. Kenya remains a country where you can bring money in and take it out at any time. Hopefully this issue of price differential is the one that is going to close very soon. And so I would encourage any investor looking at Kenya to still continue looking at Kenya. I think it's one of the most promising markets in Africa. Just as we wrap up um, our speech, we are targeted to run this for roughly an hour, but I know we're in a little bit of our allocated time. But I'm just looking at this in terms of the structural side of things. We're looking at a situation where agriculture is still a significant part, right, of our economy, but we've not really built up over the last decade, over the last 15 years, we've not really invested as much in building up export-centric parts of our economy. We're not exporting as much beyond tea and horticulture. Coffee production has been going down for several years now. Tourism, who knows that's going to recover fully, given what's happened to COVID and what we're seeing now in the air transport market. So in that sense, if we're facing a structural problem, right, in terms of, and that's reflected in our balance of payments data, given that balance of payments problem that we're facing at the moment, isn't it accurate to say that, you know, that the, the bias now will be for the shilling to essentially weaken gradually, at least over the medium term? Well, I think if you're asking about my view, is that 
the shilling will weaken, not because necessarily of the structural nature of our economy, but because the dollar has been strengthening. And I think I gave the example of the euro, the pound, and what we are seeing with all these currencies, that just because the dollar itself is strengthening, and the reason for that is obviously the rates rising in the U.S., the capital reversion from a risk perspective. I expect that the shilling will continue to weaken for a period of time. But I think that is not to say that is because of a structural setup, because Kenya has been like this for quite some time. It's not new that we are where we are today. Agriculture accounts for about 33% of our GDP. True, but so, if you look at the gap between imports and exports, our import bill is just skyrocketed completely. We've had several opportunities to try and reduce that. If you look at, for example, our fuel bill, we could have encouraged people to switch over to more hybrids, more EVs in the last five years. We haven't done that. And if our import bill continues growing at roughly the same trajectory, but export revenue remains roughly the same, it's fairly straightforward what that points to. That if you have more dollars going out than you have coming in, currency has to weaken somehow. I think if you look at before COVID, yeah? Before COVID, if we look at current account balance, it was coming down year after year, came down to as low as I believe 4.9%. It has obviously now, during COVID, started to go up 5.4, I believe now is about 5.9. So it has 5.9, it has grown. So that's the reality. But what happens during COVID? Obviously our production went down. Cost of commodities that we import from overseas, raw materials that we import became very expensive, and that has driven that growth. And more recently, obviously, the oil prices, that has driven that. And also, during COVID, remember, we had a total lockdown eh, as a country. And so, obviously, our local production also went, went down. But that said, we have operated around that 3.5 to about 5 in terms of that current account deficit. And I expect that once the economy fully opens up, and hopefully the shipping lines also open up, the supply chain opens up, we should again be reverting back to those levels. So I think, yes, it's been there, but it's not as bad as we may let it sound. It was actually closing before COVID. All right, then. I'd like to give my two speakers here, John Gashora and Mushai Kunya, the opportunity to make their closing comments very quickly in 30 seconds. And Mushai, we'll start with you. I think we do have a structural issue. And at KAM, the Association of Manufacturers, we put this in our manifesto about how we really do need to invest in exports and the productivity of our economy. Because basically our lack of exports means as far as we are trading, our position in the world is that we receive more than we are giving out. And we really need to adjust on that so that in the long run, we can have a more prosperous society. We really need to make something that we can sell to the world. So I'm just glad that the conversation is going on. I think that pricing issue, like we said, and that's where we focused on, if I summarize, that's where we are at. How can we get transparency, clarity in the pricing? That's what is going to help us move forward on this. It is not going to solve our problems. The global problems are there, and so those problems are imported. We're going to have to live with them, but we need to manage them prudently for our country as well, so that we can get through them the best way possible, difficult as they may be. Thanks. All right, John, you have the floor. Thank you, Rama. Thank you, Kunia. I really enjoyed this conversation. I would say a number of things. One, I hope from this conversation, we appreciate the source of the problem and the cause of the problem and where we are. Two, we appreciate why the things that we think will work immediately may not work and why just going to free market, what I call a free and guarded 
no instruments for stability market does not work. And I give the example of even stock markets all over the world, they have a price stability mechanism, and that's important even for the Kenyan shillings. And that's why we shall need it. I've talked about the fact that there's work going on to ensure that price transparency is there and there is a converge, convergence between what you call the counter price and what you call the case one price. I think there's a lot of work going on to ensure there's convergence. Lastly, is that selling dollars to the bank, what banks are buying dollars at, is also a negotiated price. When a customer walks in to sell dollars, we don't buy necessarily at a case one price, we negotiate as well. So if you have dollars to sell, don't refuse to sell them because you're saying I only get whatever the case one, uh, one price is. I think lastly is that sentiment is very important. And I think what we should all work at is to say we have a problem here as a country. This problem is not necessarily just Kenya, it's global. However, let's deal with our pain because we are the ones feeling it, but let's deal with it together. It do not help that we become suspicious banks are holding dollars or the central bank is interfering with dollars or the manufacturers are crying too loud that they are no dollars. I think it's being empathetic of the problem and working at it together. So I hope we continue with this conversation. And again, Rama, I really appreciate you hosting this session. Asante Sana for your time, John. Much appreciated. Hopefully when we have this conversation sometime next month, I believe, if Mongo is kind enough to host us, we'll have some positive results to report <laughs> back to our audience of 300 plus people who took their time out to sit here to listen to us for the last hour and a bit. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. I know you could be somewhere else doing something else on a Friday afternoon. We don't take your time for granted. Santeni Sana, thank you for coming in for your edition of Mongo Spaces.